chapter 11, Mark chapter 11. We come uh, this morning on this Thanksgiving weekend to uh, chronologically the 35th of Jesus' 37 miracles of his ministry time on earth. That means um, two left. It's the next to last miracle before he is crucified. Thinking, what was that miracle? The only other miracle that he uh, performed before he was crucified, if you remember, will be the, the healing of the servant's ear when Peter cut it off. That was uh, just before he was to go to the cross. This is the, this is the uh, miracle to that. The story of Jesus' actions in this miracle, the, the, um, the cursing of the fig tree, it, the story is, I try to think of a word, and the best word I can think of is uh, perplexing. Uh, this is the only miracle of Jesus in which he brings about death instead of life. Uh, he did not uh, heal a blind person to make their life better. Uh, he did not cast out a demon uh, to make life better. He did not raise someone from the dead uh, to bring life, but Jesus curses a fig tree. And many have asked, or some have asked anyway, why Jesus would vent his anger on an innocent tree. Uh, well, I don't know how an innocent, a tree can be either innocent or guilty, uh, but they have said that. He pronounces a curse and kills a tree. Is he just talking about his sovereignty over creation. Oh, Romans 9 tells us he is the potter, we are the clay. He can do whatever he wants with us. Is he, is he showing that same sovereignty over creation? Well, obviously he is sovereign over creation, but I, I would hope there would be more than just that in, in this miracle. Um, but when you think about it, could Jesus actually know the location of a donkey that had never been ridden before his triumphal entry, which comes right before this miracle, but yet not know uh, from a short distance that a fig tree had no fruit on it? Or could he feed 5,000 people but uh, not put some fruit on this tree? Not cause this tree to produce a crop so that he could eat? Why does Jesus, some have asked, vent his anger on a tree for not producing fruit, especially, especially as we have read, out of season? Well, one liberal commentator calls it, and I quote, a gross injustice on a tree which was guilty of no wrong and had but performed its natural function. Another wrote, it is a tale of miraculous power wasted in the service of ill temper, and as it stands, is simply incredible. Well, while we would not be on the side of those commentators, we, we might ask the question, what is really going on in this miracle? So in our time together, I, there are three C's that I want us to look at. Three C's that help understand uh, what is going on. C-S-E-A, I just mean C, the letter C. 
we're going to look at the, uh, the context, the content, and the conclusions. I needed another C word at the end. I thought about contemplations. That might have been good too. But context, content, and contemplation to, to help us understand what's going on in the cursing of the fig tree. Why is this in Scripture? Uh, it's, it's an unusual miracle, and, and why is it here? So let's jump in. Let's first think for a few moments about uh, context. Is this just an angry outrage by Jesus, uh, or is something else in play here? Is something else happening? When we come to Mark chapter 11, verses uh, 12 through 19, to give us the overall context, this is the the Monday of Passover week. This is the week when Jesus will be crucified. He comes in in the triumphal entry uh, in verses 1 through 11 of this chapter. We, there, if you were to read those verses, and, or if you have a little uh, title on the side, it would, it would even say the triumphal entry. That is Sunday. Sunday, Jesus comes into Jerusalem. And verse 11, you know, one thing we when we think about the Sunday, we think about the triumphal entry, entry. That's the, the main thing that we think about. Verse 11 tells us he entered Jerusalem, the triumphal entry, and, and he went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, it was already late, he went back to Bethany where he was staying. So during that triumphal entry, he actually goes into the temple and he looks around. And the question may be in our minds, well, why didn't he just do that day what he was going to do the next day. So the next day comes, and it is Monday. In verse 12, it says, On the following day, which would be Monday, when they came to Bethany, he was hungry. In the distance, a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. So we come to Monday, Monday of Passover. He curses a fig tree before entering the temple a second time since he's come into Jerusalem. And he spends the rest of the week teaching those around him in debate with the religious leaders, and on Friday, he will be crucified. At the beginning of the week, he goes immediately into what he calls robber's den, the den of of robbers in verse 17. That is the week that Jesus is facing, and we ask, does that have anything to do with what is going on in this parable? If we look at chapter 11 itself, and we think of the context of Mark chapter 11, you may remember this is not the first miracle that that we have looked at in Uh, Gospel of Mark. In Mark chapter 5, we looked at the miracle of the woman with the issue of blood and uh, the healing of the temple ruler's son. Remember, that is in in chapter 5. And we talked briefly about the idea of in those miracles, there was one story kind of wrapped around another story. And we saw that with uh, Jairus. Jairus was the, the temple ruler, and that chapter begins uh, Jairus going to Jesus and asking him to come and heal his son, and Jesus agrees to go. 
And that story is interrupted by the woman with the issue of blood. And after that miracle, we come back to Jairus' son, and he was healed. Now, some theologians call that kind of writing Mark Sandwich. Um, you know, to me, it, it seems more like a hot dog because one is it's kind of a bun wrapped around another one, but we can call it a sandwich. There's one piece of bread that starts a miracle, starts a story. There's an interruption, and then the, the first story ends. Well, Mark 11 is another one of those uh, Mark sandwiches. And here we have the, the cursing of the fig tree. This is the miracle that we're looking at today. And it is the, it's the bottom piece of bread and it's the top piece of bread. And in between the bread is the meat. And what is the meat? The meat is the Jesus cleansing the temple. If, again, if you have the title, it'll say Jesus cleanses the temple. And that's between the two loaves of bread of our miracle today. So the question is, what do those two things have in common? Because when we see that, they're to be read together. There is a link, there is some link between the fate of the barren tree and what Jesus does in the temple, in turning over to the temples, in, in kicking out those who are buying and those who are selling, and not letting anything be, be carried through the temple, whether uh, we consider that... Uh, well, a shortcut that some people say there was a shortcut that you could get through the temple more quickly rather than going all the way around. Some say that 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 carrying was a vessel, a vessel of the temple. Whatever it was, those things are connected to our miracle today. Chapter 11, however, as, I, as we look at this, may be not just a single sandwich, it may be a double Decker cheeseburger. It may be a double burger here. And the reason I say that is because these two stories are surrounded by two other paragraphs. One talks about the identity of Jesus in verses 1 through 10, and the other talks about the authority of Jesus in verses 27 through 33. So the judgment in the temple is linked to, I believe, Israel's uh, failure to recognize is the Messiah. In verses 1 through 10, Jesus coming into uh, Jerusalem in the triumphal entry, and they're, they're singing, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That was a true cry. Hosanna means save us. We sang that this morning. A, a cry for salvation. The problem was it was the right song. They were singing about the wrong Savior. They were looking for a Savior who would conquer Rome, a Savior who would free them. And they say, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. When we get to the end of chapter 11, verses 27 through 33, the priest and the scribes are asking Jesus, by what authority do you do these things? And I believe they're, they're talking about the cleansing of the temple, although they may be talking about all of the miracles that they've seen from Jesus. But in the immediate context, it, it really seems like they're, they're asking about what he just did in the temple. So between the triumphal entry and the questioning of the chief, by the chief priest and, and the scribes, there is the cursing of the fig tree and the temple cleansing. 
So the question becomes, what's, what is that? What is that link? What does the fig tree tell us about the and how does the temple relate to the miracle of the fig And that's the question we want to try to answer, that the context helps us to see this connection between these two stories. Now, if we talk about content, we'll, we'll jump right into, um, right into our, our passage of the, uh, the cursing of the fig tree as well as the cleansing of the temple. The miraculous parable um, or, or miracle is really, I think, Jesus is creating a, a parable out of this miracle which will tell us something about the temple. Jesus is turning the fig tree into a metaphor or a parable. A parable is a, a heavenly story with an, an earthly or an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. Most got that one backwards. Anyway, it, it talks about a metaphor which talks about, describes the temple, that the temple, the temple in Judaism was the heart. It was the heart of the Jewish nation. I mean, if you just look at the, the history of Israel, you find in the very beginning in Genesis chapter 22, the story when he, he, he is told to take Isaac and sacrifice Isaac, and he, he takes Isaac up to Mount Moriah. And God provides a sacrifice that, to, that Isaac sacrificed on Mount Moriah. Well, 900 years later, you know the story, David buys Mount Moriah, the same place. And his son Solomon builds a, a temple on Mount Moriah. It is to be a place for sacrifices, going all the way back to Abraham. Well, 300 years after that, Babylon comes and destroys that temple because of the divine judgment of God on Israel. They had abandoned God, and God destroyed that temple. They were in exile 70 years. We've been, Bob's been taking us through that in the Minor Prophets. For 70 years, they were in captivity. They're able to build a modest temple after that. They're released, and to build a modest temple, some of them say, you know, this is not like it was in the old days, uh, but at least we've got a modest temple. That temple was desecrated by a man named Antiochus. And how did he desecrate the temple? He hated the Jews, and he burned pigs on the altar as, as a sacrifice to the gods. That's the worst thing to do on a Jewish altar, burn an unclean pig. And, and the temple was desecrated and the false worship continued in that second temple. And then in the year 20 BC, Herod decides he's going to rebuild the temple. It's really an addition to this kind of modest temple. But he expands that temple. And then in AD 70, the Romans come and destroy that temple. The story of the temple is a story of Israel's repeated apostasy, their repeated rejection of God. And in verse 12, he says, On the following day when they came to Bethany, he was hungry. The following day, again, Jesus, I think Jesus knew exactly 
what he was going to do. I don't think this took him by surprise. He, he had been in the temple. He, he had looked around the temple. This was not a, uh, a spontaneous reaction. I, I'm not even sure that, you know, seeing the, the fig tree and cursing the fig tree, I think his, his mind is focused on what he's doing. And verse 11 says he was in the temple the day before looking around. Why did he use the fig tree? This is a, if this is a metaphor, why did he use the fig tree? Well, if we go to the minor prophets in Hosea, which is the first uh, of the minor prophets, in Hosea uh, chapter 9, verse 10, it says this, Like grapes in the wilderness I found Israel. Grapes, a picture of Israel. Like the first fruit of the fig tree, in its first season I saw your fathers. The fig tree in the Old Testament is, is an image of Israel. But they came to and consecrated themselves to the thing of shame and became detestable like the thing they loved. And drop down to verse 16, it says, Ephraim is stricken. Their root is dried up. They shall bear no fruit. Even though they give birth, I, I will put my beloved, their beloved children to death. My God will reject them because they have not listened to him. They shall be wanderers among the nations. They'll be just like the fish. They will bear no fruit. They will bear no fruit. If we turn over to Micah chapter 7, just a few pages over. Verse 1 says this, Woe is me, for I have become as when the summer fruit has been gathered, as when the grapes have been gleaned, there is no cluster to eat, no first ripe fig that my soul desires. This is a picture of the Old Testament of Israel. And even if we go to uh, Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 8, Jeremiah chapter 8 verse 13 says, says this, Then I would gather them, declares the Lord. There, there are no grapes on the vine, nor figs on the the leaves are withered and what I gave them has passed away from them. This is why Jesus cursed the fig tree. Not in, not in a fit of anger because there were no figs on the tree. He wasn't angry at the tree, but it represents Israel. And Israel is falling under the judgment of God. Because they miss their Messiah. Since this miracle is a, a, a symbol of, of Israel, what does it say about Israel? Well, if we look at the passage, it says this about Israel. Chapter Mark, not Luke. Mark chapter 11, it says there's nothing but leaves. Mark chapter 11, he says this, when he came to Jerusalem, entered the temple, uh, let's go up there, when he came in, in verse, um, verse 13, and seeing in a distance a fig tree, went see if there's anything on it, when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves. He found nothing 
but leaves. All leaves, no fruit. Interesting thing about the fig tree, and I'm not a, I'm not a botanist or a specialist on fig trees, but what I understand about fig trees is this, that fruit comes first. That fruit comes first on the fig tree and leaves come second. So if there, if there are, um, are leaves on the tree, then you would have fruit on the tree generally. Some fig trees have two seasons, and it's not unusual in the spring and the fall. This is, this is in the spring because Passover comes, and in the spring, figs produce a fruit that is not the sweetest of the two seasons. In the fall, there's a sweet fruit, and as a matter of fact, the Jews call the spring fruit poor man's, poor man's fruit, and they call the fall fruit rich man's fruit because it is sweet and it is it is better to eat. Fall produces rich man's, uh, spring produces poor man's fruit. But if there were leaves, there should be some kind of fruit there. There should be fruit, and even the spring fruit is, is edible. It's not as, as good, but it is edible. But he says, there is nothing but leaves. And Jesus, seeing nothing but leaves, he curses the tree because it produced no fruit. Angry outrage, I don't think so. Prophetic word, I think, is what Jesus is doing here. Jesus uses this miracle as a picture of judgment on Israel, just like the other prophets do in the Old Testament. As a matter of fact, in uh, the book of Acts, even the, in the New Testament, there's a, there's a of of Acts in verse 11 he gives a picture to Paul and he says in coming to us he took Paul's belt and bound his feet and hands and said thus says the Holy Spirit this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles he is giving a picture of what is going to happen to Paul an interesting thing there is, is Paul's going to have to actually follow through with that. If He's going to have to make a decision to go or not to go. But Jesus is doing the same thing here. He's taking this tree and he's saying, this is a picture of Israel. This is a picture of judgment. This is a, a nation that has leaves but no fruit. Now I know some of you are reading this as we go along, you're, you're sharp readers and you're seeing here the words that says, it was not the season for fig. Things like that makes this a little nonsensical, doesn't it? I mean, if it weren't in the season for figs, why would Jesus expect figs? Why would Jesus curse a, a fig tree not bearing fruit, not in season? Well, I think Mark's words help us to understand that. It that um, this should be a, a hint to us that this is really a, a symbolic picture here. This is a metaphor that there's more going on than meets the eye in this story. That Jesus' action, it's not about a particular fig tree. It's not about a particular fruit. This is a story about the temple. This is a story about Israel. The word season here is not the, the botanical word for a growing season. 
It's not saying this is, it was not the growing season. It's really a religious term. It's used, it's used in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, when it says this. Now, after John was arrested, uh, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. It is a word, not a, of chronological time, but of an appropriate time, a season of time. And he uses this same word to say the time has been fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. And so Mark uses this same word that the time of the Messiah has come. And Jesus finds in the temple nothing but leaves and no fruit. The Messiah has come. Jesus, Israel did not recognize their Messiah. But because Jesus doesn't receive, is not received, there are no figs. There are no figs in the temple. What were figs a, a symbol of? Well, a symbol of, of, of Israel, a symbol of the nation, but also a symbol of peace and a symbol of prosperity. If you look in Micah chapter 4 or Zechariah chapter 3 verse 10, you'll see that there's a picture of sitting under a fig tree is a symbol of hope for the future. And there's no, no, there's no fruit in Israel. There's no hope. There's no peace. There's no prosperity. Why? Because they miss the Messiah. And the curse becomes complete. And why do we say that? And uh, Paul or Peter says to him, the fig tree that you curse has withered. It becomes the, the completed curse. And it says the disciples heard it. I don't think the disciples understood of all, all of this until probably Mark later. Mark's now writing it down. It seems obvious he understood it at that point. But possibly they were thinking about the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus said, you know, you shall know them by their fruit. The miracle is not about the tree. The miracle is, is about thinking that you can establish righteousness. It is about showing the appearance of fruit, but not actually bearing fruit. It is about false profession. It is about hypocrisy. See, the tree is a, is a object lesson about the sin of hypocrisy. It's a lesson to us. Uh, R.C. Sproul, before he passed away, uh, he talked about um, the sin of hypocrisy. He says all hypocrites are sinners, but not all sinners are hypocrites. And I think that, that is, there's some truth in, in that. But the biggest objection to people going to church is hypocrisy. Oh, look at the hypocrites in that church. Well, you know, we are, we're probably the only organization that requires people to be sinners to join. Uh, so, um, not all sinners are hypocrites, uh, but all hypocrites are sinners. I hope not all of us are hypocrites, but all of us sin. But this miracle, this, this bread sets the stage for what comes next, sets the stage for the meat to be put on uh, the bread. Jesus is going to, we call it cleanse the temple, but Jesus is not 
reforming the temple. He's not saying to them, I don't believe in this, in, in this um, metaphor that if you just do things better, you know, if you, you start sacrificing animals the correct way, it'll all be fine. Jesus is going to die in four days. He will, he will become the sacrifice. He's not, he's not reforming the temple. This is the destruction of the temple. This is the curse of the temple. How does he do this? By this prophetic word on Israel. The cursing of the temple is a curse on the leaders of the temple. But it's not only a curse on the leaders of the temple, the priests, the, you know, the scribes, the Pharisees. It is a curse on, on all of Israel. Why do we say that? Well, throughout Scripture, when the leaders uh, worshipped idols, the nation worshipped idols. When the leaders obeyed God, the nation obeyed God. If the leaders miss the Messiah, the nation is going to miss the Messiah. What happens here? Well, Jesus drove out the sellers and the buyers, which I, I think is another indication that this is a, this is a, a curse on the nation, the nation uh, in their uh, misunderstanding of the Messiah. But he didn't only drive out um, those people. He drove out the priests. Well, those who were in cahoots with the priests anyway, those who were selling the animals. He drove the people out who were responsible for the desecration of worship in the temple. Where did this happen? It was in what is called the court of Gentiles or the court of nations. And in the temple, there was, there was this big surrounding uh, court where the Gentiles were allowed to go into and then there was an inner court and it, it goes up the hill to the highest point being the Holy of Holies. There's the women's court which were the Jewish women and then there's the Jewish court which were the men, the, the men. Uh, so there were separations of people leading up to the Holy of Holies where the priests would go in once a year to offer sacrifices for the people. So in this court of the Gentiles, there was selling going on. Selling of animals uh, for um, sacrifice. And so we, we believe that those selling would split the profits with the priests. There, there was buying and selling of animals. It was ripe for corruption. Why? Because the priests were the one who would, would verify the animals. If, if you brought your animal from home for a sacrifice, the priests would have to say, well, this is a spotless uh, lamb, unblemished lamb. Or they would say, you know, that's not one. You need to buy one from our guys here in the court of the Gentiles. And so there, it was ripe for corruption. And in the court of the Gentiles, you know, when I was younger, and I, I read this story, was taught this story. I was thinking, you know, of a building like this, that Jesus just cleared out the whole thing. That he just, the whole temple was cleared out. Well, when you realize that the court of the Gentiles is, is an area, five football fields by three and a half football fields. Um, and in one section of that, these tables are set up. 
This was, this was really um, not a, a reformation of the temple. He wasn't trying to correct anything. He was saying this is a symbol of destruction of the temple. The temple was dedicated to the glory of God. The purpose of the temple had been distorted. Money changers had been brought in. There was a, there was a half shekel uh, tax each year that all uh, adult Jews had to pay. And you could only pay it in the, in the currency of actually the, the, the city of, of Tyre, uh, believe it or not, which was an enemy. But they had a currency with no, no human figure on it, so it was the closest thing they could get to the holy. It wasn't what they used in Jerusalem. So you had to change money. So you had to pay... Uh, a little bit extra to get the currency that would go into the temple. So there was all of this going on in the temple. And Jesus comes and he, he cleans it out. He turns over the money uh, tables. He, he, um, he frees all of the animals. And we know this was big business. If Jesus was coming to um, reform the temple, then... That didn't really happen. Because we know in A.D. 66, there's a, there's a record that over a quarter million lambs were slaughtered in the temple. This is big business. This is a cursing of the temple. In fact, it is, it is likely in, in that by the time Jesus was crucified, these tables were set up again. So what happened? What was the purpose? Well, that brings us to considering some conclusions. Verse 20, we come to verse 20, it says, And as they were passing by in the morning, this is the next day, they saw the fig tree withering away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed fig tree that you cursed has withered. Only three days now from crucifixion. Withering a tree does not happen overnight. Physically, this proves the curse, the miracle of the curse. But it's interesting that it root, the, the roots withered away. Uh, Jesus had shown his authority by, by actually doing this miracle. He had condemned the tree. He had destroyed it, the tree. But he wasn't simply showing his power over nature. He's showing his power over sin. The temple is of worship for the Jewish nation. The temple was the heart of Israel. The fig tree withered at its root. It withered at its heart. And the same is true of the temple. Jesus cursed worship in the temple. So how and, and why? Well, he did it by driving out both sellers, by turning over the tables of the money changers, by, by cursing the temple. Jesus is preventing worship in this action. He's preventing sacrifice because there was no true worship going on in the temple. And he says, if you're not going to worship God correctly, you're not going to worship 
God at all, and the temple has been turned into, he calls it a, a den of robbers. A den of robbers. Turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 7 just for a moment. This phrase comes from Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 11. It says this, Has this house which is called by my name become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. That, that little phrase, it just kind of catches you. It's there, you don't even notice it until you read uh, Mark. I myself have seen it. It's kind of the night before Jesus came in and looking around the temple, uh, he comes into the den of robbers. He says, I have seen it. I saw it yesterday and I see it today. But he calls it a den of robbers. They were robbers. Why? Well, you might say well, they were robbers because of everything they were doing in the temple. They were taking everybody's money. They were doing all of these things in the temple. Well, I would suggest that they were robbers not simply because of what they were doing in the temple, but how they were using the temple to cover up their sin. Look in uh, chapter 7 of Jeremiah. The word came to Jeremiah the Lord, verse 1, stand at the gate of the Lord's house, proclaim this word. And then he goes on in chapter, in verse 5, for if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you execute justice one with another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, the widow, or innocent blood, or spill, shed innocent blood in this place, if you do not go after other gods, to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place in the land that I have that I gave of old to your fathers forever. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. You steal, murder, commit adultery, swear, swear falsely, make idols to Baal, and go after other gods which you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, We are delivered. Only to go on uh, doing all the abominations. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers? You see, a den of robbers is where robbers go to be safe. And they were going to the temple to be safe. It was their den. They were sinning in the temple, in the den, yeah. But they were sinning with their whole lives. And then they were coming to the temple and say, we worship God. You know, in John 2, there's another cleansing of the temple. And, it's, and between that cleansing and this cleansing, what does Jesus do? He calls everybody to true worship. But what did they do? They rejected him, and in just three days, they're going to kill him. They don't worship him. There's one other thing. It says this will be a house of prayer for all nations. Isaiah 56, 7 talks about that. Jesus, it, it, Jesus spent his whole ministry gathering in whom? The unwanted, the desperate woman with the issue of blood, the lepers, the blind, the demon-possessed. He gathered them all in. And the Jews hated the Gentiles. That's why there was a court of Gentiles. They would never give equal access to the inner courts to Gentiles. The Jews failed to take the gospel to the nations. They'd never allow that. You see, true worship, Jesus is saying, is now only possible at the cross. 
and it's open to everyone. And this is what the miracle, I believe, of the, of the cursed, cursed fig tree is all about. That the judgment of God against false worship and the coming of the Messiah, who is the temple, who is the sacrifice. Because it's at the cross that the curtain of the temple was torn in two and, and salvation was open to everyone. It's at the cross the sacrifice was made that paid the price for sin for all who will believe. It's at the cross that Jesus became even the altar where we bow at the cross before Jesus. What is this miracle about? It's about this. Hypocritical worship is an abomination to the Lord. Remember Saul in 1 Samuel 15 21, when Saul lost his kingship and said to him, obedience, not sacrifice. I desire obedience, not your sacrifice. There's a man lived when I was a, a kid, died a tragic death. He was a songwriter. His name was Keith Green. Some of you may remember him. He wrote a song about that verse, and, and, and the verse, two verses of the song say this, to obey is better than sacrifice. I don't need your money. I want your life. And I hear you say that I'll be coming back soon, but you act like I'll never return. To obey is better than sacrifice. I want more than Sundays and Wednesday nights. Because if you can't come to every day, then don't bother coming at all. You see, Israel missed Messiah. And Jesus cursed the temple because there was false worship in the temple. May we be a people who worship in spirit and in truth. May Providence be a place where all are welcome to worship. A place where we're the same people on Sunday as we are on Monday. A people who live every day in hope of the return of our Messiah, who was our sacrifice and is our temple. And we bow before the cross to him. Praise.